Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus, Brendan here with Mark, episode 267, Thursday, November the 10th. 2022 how are you mark very very well brandon everything is good at the moment everything is good pretty good here too we were having a little chat off air weren't we about as usual just bits and pieces <laughs> sometimes it's a bit of a, a whine but it was pretty positive wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we do we those um you know with the extensive meeting we have uh, pre-podcast to go over the agenda we do manage to slip in a little bit of discussion about our our families and i know i am prone to having a bit of a whinge but uh, yeah no this time it's um it's all good. The families are going okay. Yes, it's a, it's our brainstorming session, Mark, <laughs> isn't it, um, that we have um, and working out the agenda. Yes, so all good here too, plugging away as usual. Um, as this is going to air, I will actually be away in a, on an island off an island, Mark. Um, so as... We briefly chatted about. I'll be in Tasmania, um, and of gee, I've, I should get frequent fly points for heading to um, Tassie. I go, I've been there a fair few times over the years. So yeah, Annie and I heading off with um, my sister-in-law and her partner for five days. Mark of R and R reading and. Rating. <laughs> you know, you know, this is the time of year in Tassie that the um, the various mushrooms and funguses come out. The slightly warming weather and the wet weather we've had lately. You'll be able to get some. You'll be taking your camera down it, and I expect some uh, mycology photography. Ah, I will put that on the list, Mark. <laughs> and if I'm not taking pics of them, I might be cooking some up and you never know what um, insights I might then be able to um, <laughs> reveal once that hits my neurons, Mark. Um, I'm also planning, depending on the weather, to do a little uh, kayak trip for a few hours at sunset oh. in Coles Bay near the Frasianet Peninsula near near Wineglass Bay, Mark, um, which is a spectacular part of the world. And I will certainly be having my camera on board the kayak there, Mark. So Excellent. Yeah, we'll see. I will send you some pics. So, yes, um, that's happening as we record this, but uh, we'll, I'll, we might report back on it the week after, after the trip. So let's jump into, well, vetgurus.com is a place to go. Hello to all our new Listeners and subscribers, thank you very much. And our long-term subscribers, good on you. Don't know how you do it, but keep hanging in there. We, we keep hanging in there and um, we're, we're glad you're with us. And hello to Specialised Animal Nutrition, one of our sponsors. I think actually we might have plugged them last week, but we'll plug them again this week. Um, all the fantastic variations on the critical care supplements um, and some very good, very good, Mark, um, merchandise, well, not really merchandise, education materials. Um, and I have a great little laminated picture of rabbit uh, 
condition score in my um, consult room, Mark. So um, I use that for um, educating clients about their fat rabbits, Mark. So, um, yeah, they have some good good, good um, information there. Um, have you got any news um, or reviews, Mark, anything I think you wanted to chat about? Oh, I was going to – I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that I um, – I, one of our cats, um, I know it strays outside the broad ambit of our unusual and exotic pets, but um, I do have some cats. Um, we have them in, you know, in, they have an outdoor enclosure. They don't go outside or hunt anything, so that's always good. But um, Mr Pink, our 18-year-old uh, black and white cat, um, uh, developed diabetes. Um, and uh, so we whacked a... Um, a freestyle, uh, freestyle Libra two uh, appliance. Um, so that's just uh, uh, clip some skin, um, uh, glue. You do apply a little bit of extra glue. They're adhesive. Um, you whack them on. They have a little catheter which slips into the subcutaneous space, um, and um, and then you can check blood glucose repeatedly for two weeks uh, in the home in situ um, and keep an eye on it. And I thought it'd be a good idea just to say uh, how successful that was. Uh, we did have to adjust his insulin several times over that couple of weeks. We've got him down to um, two international units once a day um, and he is very stable. And Cracky's the device um, gave us a good deal of peace of mind in making those adjustments. The only thing I'd say that was um, there was a couple of little hiccups along the way, Brendan. The first one was that I thought it would be nice to, because uh, it connects to your phone, an app on your phone. So you just wave the phone near the cat and the Bluetooth connection fires up and gives you the blood glucose reading. Um, and then you can send that, you know, around the world to experts to have a look at the curve and, and get advice about what you should do or just do it yourself is the other option. Yeah. Um, and um, but the device Bluetooths once to one device, and if you try to do it again, it spits the dummy and dies. Um, and uh, and so that's a good tip for new players: don't try and connect your Libra two device to more than one phone at a time. Sounds and like a little bit of a glitch in the software that they, yeah. Yes, they haven't sorted yet. Mm. Um, the other thing is that um, I thought that that um, that it might be a little bit of a, a a hassle, you know, cats scratching them off. Or I've got to say, they they they're they're a decent size. What's a good analogy? You know, the um, hundred gram Vegemite jar with the yellow lid. Most of our overseas listeners probably have no idea what I'm talking about but that's <laughs> precisely the size of the device it's about um, seven millimeters thick and a circular and probably 38 millimeters in in diameter um, and it's not light and I thought the cats would really arc up with it but they cope with the the the, the thing being put on them really really well so yeah i want to give it a very very high eight out of six as a device to eight help. out of six uh, 8.6 that's out a very of high score <laughs> <laughs> it is a well, how do we yeah um, one did, point did you uh, have, 12.5 out of 10 did, did you have staff meetings where you'd get up at the, <laughs> at the start and say 
you need to give 200%. <laughs> Regularly. <laughs> I wonder they all left, Mark. So. <laughs> um, 8.6 out of 10. And, um, and yeah, uh, um, I think it's a, a really made a difference to uh, how effective – because we can do it at home. Um, we used to do all that stuff in hospital and the curves we developed were probably useful but um, probably a little bit um, – uh, uh, affected by the stress on the animal being in hospital. Um, so doing it at home over two weeks really made a difference. I love them. Excellent. Well, the only curves I develop, Mark, is not exercising enough. So <laughs> um, I've got to get out there more. So let's jump into our news story. And we just have one. I think you wanted to kick off with this as well, didn't you, Mark? It's a <laughs> interesting study, and we'll link to it at vetgurus.com if you search for this episode number 267. You'll see the article link, and it'll take you straight to it. And there's some interesting pictures there, aren't there, Mark? It is. It's um. It's entitled The Jaw-Dropping Study. I love the clickbait name. Jaw-Dropping Study reveals how pythons can devour supersized prey. Um, supersized prey. And we, we always... This I find, found this article particularly interesting because there's a phenomenon in unusual and exotic animal practice where you see snakes and and that the, amongst a certain cohort of snake owners there's a certain cache in how big a prey item their animal eats um, and uh, and there's even some you know pictures on Facebook about uh, different animals eating um, uh, different uh, different snakes eating different sized animals and um, and it it's just fascinates me that um, that this particular topic seems to capture the imagination of well even researchers and biologist Bruce Jane um, uh, collected a number of euthanized Burmese pythons um, that, uh, you know, there's an active process of culling these pythons uh, in the Florida Everglades where they, um, they're they a feral pest. Um, and um, so he collected a bunch of dead ones and then stuck various, well, he calls them probes, but they look a lot like um, plastic buckets in their mouths to see how bigger... Uh, diameter thing they could fit. Um, obviously, there's a little bit of a, you know, the animals are dead and not not um, not uh, feeding themselves, not moving their jaw around the the uh, probe um, themselves. But um, but yeah, it um, it is an interesting thing to just get a bit of an idea of um, of what uh, uh, you know what was the the uh, 60 kilo snake measuring 4.3 meters um, was able to wrap its mouth around a 22 centimeter diameter uh, plastic probe. Um, such a probe um, was big enough to, uh, you know, is bigger than a, the diameter of uh, a small human head. So um, that gives you an idea of uh, not even the biggest Burmese python. Burmese pythons can get to nearly twice that, ninety kilos. Um, so they could they could um, yeah fit a whole lot into their mouth. Some of the interesting co- uh, notes in this article was that um, that's not a consistent pattern across different species, which I suppose is sort of intuitive that maybe uh, snakes like brown tree snakes, which were also looked at, 
um, they tend not to go for such large, uh, disproportionately large prey as some of the pythons, and they certainly couldn't get their um, mouth while they could get over their prey. They couldn't get it to the same sort of uh, proportionally large diameter that the pythons could. Um, but, yeah, an interesting article, and I don't know what to say. But I don't know what the conclusions are, Brendan. We all we all know that snakes can um, uh, fiddle a fair bit in their mouth. And I suppose the other comment about it was that it's always good to see these articles highlight that the snakes don't dislocate their jaws, as we all know. They, uh, they have certain lax uh, joints, loose joints or... Um, uh, um, Loosey-goosey. <laughs> Loosey-goosey for the goosey. Um, yes, uh, they, don't, uh, they don't dislocate their mouths at all. They just open them very, very wide because the the joints and the symphysis are very, very loose connective tissue um, that allows them to stretch. So, yeah, a good article, Brendan. What did you think? It's, well, Bruce is very happy with this. He looks very <laughs> proud there with his 3D printed bucket, um, which is calling the probe there. And I think they do mention in the article that, yeah, that the probe's Looks strikingly similar to an orange home depot bucket. Um, for those of you in the US will know what that means. So a typical, you know, just basic bucket um, that they're, yeah, they're just opening up the mouth of the snake and shoving the biggest size bucket or probe they can fit in there to get a rough idea of the flexibility of that mouth and the size. And they do have a picture there, don't they, Mark, of a Burmese python that was 31 pounds regurgitating a white-tailed deer mm. which was a 35 pounds in southwest florida and gee, it's it is pretty amazing that the, the flexibility of that that ted and the system they've developed there so yeah and well a, f- a fun article mark i, mean, yeah, I suppose <laughs> you are you like i said before in our uh, pre-podcast meeting you're you're really um glass half fulling it uh, quite a lot these days so you're looking for the positives <laughs> in the article well that do you was, have client? Do you have clients like that that um, that uh, brag about the the size of the rabbit, chicken? Well, I think it's more when you were mentioning that. I, I think it's more the old, um, and I'm sure you're going to say exactly the the client who phones up and said it's it's not. I have a four year old species of whatever python. It, it's I have a two meter snake yes. that needs seen. You know, oh god, a ten foot. You know. Um, carpet python, yeah. So it's yeah, it's it's um, trying to impress you with their size. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes, um, so that's that's probably more more common rather than um, in, in 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 my practice anyway. Then yeah, I've I've managed to shove a <laughs> twenty liter bucket in the mouth of my snake. Yes, I so do. That, the only, only other thing I was going to comment about this was that um, that. Uh, that it's risky that when you're at the very limit of what the snake can put in its mouth, accidents are more likely to happen and complications. And and so I think um, just I wanted to emphasise that appropriately sized prey items uh, are the go with captive animals. Don't don't be trying to bite off more than you can swallow, (laughs) Mark. Exactly. Okay, let's jump into our main topic this week, which is intestinal obstructions in ferrets and... 
the do's and don'ts of, of what you should be letting your ferret eat and the approach to the surgery of these cases, Mark, because it's not an uncommon oh, it's so common condition word. in ferrets. Why? Because ferrets are pretty damn inquisitive animals and you need to make sure you're supervising them when they are roaming around the household there and they just have a bit of a fascination don't they mark with with things they shouldn't be <laughs> putting in their mouth especially rubbery or plastic type items are the um, items that i've tended to have removed from the intestinal tract of ferrets mark and i presume from what you said you have had a similar experience i i agree entirely the those sort of plastic um foam uh, yes. Um, the the sorts of things that might be included in some toys, um, those sorts of things, uh, ferret owners have to be on high alert because, uh, surprisingly, um, they the ferrets their inquisitive nature and um, their fascination with those textures means that um, they will very often end up ingesting bits of them, and often bits of them that uh, don't work their way all the way through. Yep, and I think one of the key factors, we talk about the signs of why those ferrets would be presented to the clinic and when you start thinking about intestinal obstruction being the, the issue going on there, one of the big differences with these is they don't, as a rule, vomit, Mark, do they, or gag, um, nowhere near as much certainly as you would get eventually in a dog or a cat with an intestinal obstruction. I've, I've even had some that don't. Don't um, haven't had one one vomit at all or, or retching episode, um, and yet it's been an obstruction that's been there for several days, if not a week or so, with them. So I think that's one of the things you need to think about: what is different with um, conditions in unusual pets. And uh, so tr you know the signs that they're brought in typically for me that I've I've seen with these intestinal obstruction ferrets are my ferret is flat. He's lethargic. She's not eating that much, a um, little bit miserable, maybe a bit grumpy, um, perhaps a bit of a tucked up abdomen, um, painful abdomen there. Um, they may, one of the signs that I do see, Mark, and um, let's see what you say with your cases, um, a little bit of um, sloppy drop-ins, um, perhaps a little bit of intermittent diarrhoea, was it? Um, and they're the most common things I see with them. What about you? Unsurprisingly, very, very similar set of signs, Brendan. The, the, as you said, I think the key thing here is to um, be aware that because the foreign bodies are often those flexible bits of foam or plastic, or uh, they are often incomplete, and so the characteristics are they're incomplete obstructions, um, and those partial obstructions do allow some of the food to wiggle past at certain times. Um, and so they continue to produce stools, often not vomit at all, and um, and but the altered function of the gut means the stools are uh, irregular, often a little bit loose, um, and those other non-specific abdo abdo signs are gastrointestinal signs of gastrointestinal pain, a bit of hunching, um, uh, generally being off their food because it's slow to pass by the incomplete obstruction, um, all the classic sorts of signs that we see as well. Yep, I agree. So what do we do, Mark? What do we do? What's, that, what's your approach? What's your basic sort of minimum workup for these? What do you say to the client in that consult? Well, 
the first thing is that this is one of those situations I know so often when we talk, um, we do our physical exam, then we leap into the, the additional diagnostics. Um, and of course, imaging and, um, and blood work are important in these cases, but I find emphasizing the physical exam is, is critical here because the, the abdomen of fer ferrets is so, amenable to extensive and detailed palpation that you can often um, feel, particularly if you're familiar, if you spend a bit of time feeling the abdomen of ferrets, um, uh, the locations where the obstructions may be, may be like abundantly clear. So a good thorough physical exam with particular attention to palpation is the first thing that I would spend my time doing. Spot on, Mark. It's amazing how many of these, even though these obstructions can be very small when we chat about the size of that small intestine, which is often where they are, is that you can get it, well, you have a bit of a guarded abdomen there, they, you know, they're tensing up there, and it's amazing how many of them you can actually palpate, that little knot, that little region of the intestinal tract that you can feel that firm obstruction there, and you think, we've got an obstruction here, we need to get stuck into the, the next step with this particular one, and if, if it's so tense or angry at you that you cannot palpate that abdomen correctly or properly, then the good thing there is that once we have that animal emitted and we sedate or anaesthetise it, um, always have another good good feel of that abdomen when they're relaxed there. And it's amazing if you haven't picked it up in that initial consultation when the animal's awake, you will certainly pick it up during that um, palpation down the track. Um, and when I, I not, so I do exactly the same as you, Mark. Um, then I would be admitting the animal, doing the the obvious things that we do with most most if not all animals that we recommend a, a blood screen as part of the process there then we will sedate or anaesthetize it to that palpation there and we'll zap a radiograph mark so what do you typically see on the radiograph of these ones with those obstructions well they're classic obstruction abdominal uh, gastrointestinal uh, obstruction radiographs. They have, you can often see uh, a smaller radio opaque area in the vicinity of the obstruction. The obstruction itself is often not uh, radio opaque, um, uh, but you might just pick up the inflammation around it, the thickening of the wall of the intestine, not specifically visible, but appearing as that sort of uh, hazy, lighter area. Um, and that's often accompanied with uh, areas of um, gas because of the altered pattern of contraction in the gut, the slowed contraction in the gut, um, there is likely to be a buildup of um, uh, gas in the gut and so uh, um, some segmental dilation uh, characteristic of ileus that, um, that um, shows up as uh, bubbles of gas on the radiograph. They're probably the outstanding findings we see, Brendan. Yep. The, the other thing I talk about with um, radiographs uh, is that, and palpation for that matter, is that um, I think it's critically important to do them proximate to the next step that we do, uh, um, and that we're going to talk about surgery in a minute. But um, like many animals, uh, and particularly with partial obstructions, um, they can move. 
And so leaping in and thinking that you're going to look at something in the first part of the small intestine um, and then finding that, you know, that's moved down to another part of the small intestine or in rare cases, um, the uh, altered function of the gut because of coming into hospital, repeated palpation and uh, various supportive medications means that the thing passes. So make sure that you take those radiographs and do the palpation immediately before you go in to cut, Brendan. So you've decided you're going to jump in there and remove it. Um, and would that be the case with the vast majority of them, Mark? Do any of them, you do you leave them alone and see if they pass through? Do you give them you know, paraffin? Do you... Gut, gut stimulants, can can you push that obstruction through or not? Well, while the nature of the partial obstruction, because it's foam and a little bit more flexible, might suggest that uh, there's a reasonable chance that they will pass, the majority of them, once they get to the stage of being presented, um, the spasm around the, the, the uh, obstruction is enough to mean that the majority of them will not move and so I generally am headed to surgery. There definitely has been cases where we've recommended surgery and the clients have not been in a position where they could go with that and we have done the supportive care things and had success um, but the likelihood of success I think is much lower with uh, conservative management than it is if you cut at an early time. A chance to cut is a chance to cure. I agree completely, Mark. Um, get in there, remove it. And the good news with the surgery is that it's in, in uh, fairly routine, isn't it? it it's oh, it's certainly within my range of being able to do so. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it, it's, like you said, relatively routine surgery. And, and a part of well, the, the only the only um, there's, I suppose there's two challenges with the species that we've got here. One is the... Uh, the width or the size of that small intestinal tract there, Mark, because it's only a few millimetres um, wide there. So you may need to make sure you've got your specs on or your um, surgical loops if um, if you're struggling to see um, that that size there. Um, but it's usually fairly easy um, to to visualise it. And as always with any of these intestinal obstructions, um, make sure you have a good feel through the whole intestinal tract, making sure that you're not missing another obstruction and it's chewed on, chewed up something and we've got little bits um, and you've missed and you've, you know, you always kick yourself if you ever get excellent to that stage, yep, don't you? Excellent tip. You, you've done <laughs> obstructive surgery and then that's not getting better and then you <laughs> Zap another X-ray and say, uh-oh, we've left something in there, another bit. Um, and the second one is the, the post-op, I suppose, bit about um, being a ferret that they are prone to potentially annoying that surgical site. So my tip or tips there, Mark, are try to not have any external sutures if you can get away without it, um, and that's intradermal sutures or, or a little bit of tissue glue, preferably intradermal sutures as your skin closure, and that's usually relatively okay and, and, and um, um, not, not too much of a challenge for, for most people. Um, and also, as usual, Mark, lots of pain relief is is the key to stopping them um, annoy that surgery site. Um, and like any sort of low pressure system where you've taken out a obstruction in a dog cat, 
any animal, small intestine, um, you get them feeding pretty damn quick. You don't need to wait. Um, you can, you can once they've recovered from that anaesthetic, um, the, the same day, within a few hours, I usually are feeding that ferret mark. Um, I reckon I'm, you're exactly, and it's even more important than in our dogs and cats to get in there with the ferret and because of their rapid transit time um, you want food in there that food the movement um, promotes blood flow and speedy healing so you're exactly right the quicker you get it in the better when you're sewing them up Brendan do you what is there a particular pattern you use with the small intestine is there I know I'm a very simple person um, and so <laughs> so um, simple interrupted sutures uh double check to make sure they close things up. There's not enough space to do those complicated inverting patterns in my experience. Do you follow the same sort of pattern? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so we're both very simple, aren't we, Mark? So, yes, um, nothing too fancy there. Um, I think, well, in my, because I'm not that great at doing microsurgery, if, if I attempt those more fancy surgical techniques are more likely to cause a stricture in my opinion um with with my my um quality of my surgery <laughs> so I, I just keep it simple yes um try and make sure we haven't uh, we've we've closed that closed that intestinal tract and and we've um made sure we're not trying to decrease the lumen um size there and um feeling full of pain relief mark and and that may be Probably initially it's going to be some opiates and then um, some non-steroidals um, and uh, routine sort of post-operative check and, and suture removal if we have any external ones. But usually I don't, but sometimes I've had to put in it the odd um, simple interrupted skin suture as well, Mark. And, yeah, um, yeah. I've, I've, I've been very happy um, typically with the fact that most of my patients have not bothered those surgical sites with them um, so brendan what recommendations do you make to the clients to um to prevent these problems is there specific things you ask them to look out for don't buy a ferret <laughs> that's the obvious one but uh, yeah supervised play um is, is 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 the key to this you know always supervising your ferret when it's outside its enclosure and you know how we bang on about environmental enrichment and letting these animal enjoy, animals enjoy themselves and that's whole part of being a ferret. They just love getting around and you know, having, having those tunnels and all those sorts of environmental enrichment things we've spoken about in previous episodes. But when they're out of the enclosure, yeah, don't just let them wander around the the um the lounge room or the or the household because they will get into trouble. You need to just make sure you keep an eye on them, Mark. Keep an eye on them. Any final comments, Mark, before we um, get out of here? Because I, I think it's a good little, you know, we've ripped through it, um, but it's a good little summary of a condition, a couple of important differences with with um, obstructions in, in ferrets compared with other species. But um, they're, they're satisfying, aren't they, the, these surgeries with them? They're, they're a, a real win-win one. Um, with um, the clients um, are happy, the ferrets happy. It's win win win, and we're happy because um, I just I just find them a, a, a good surgery to do um, when everything goes to plan. Precisely the same. We're out of here. We'll talk to you all next week.
Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thank you.